This evening's Old Testament reading is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we come before you now and invite your spirit to take this old redemptive story and make it new. And we pray that our heart and our mind will be so captivated by you in a fresh way today that it would move our lives to be different even as we leave this place. And Lord, that kind of work can only be done by you. So we ask that you would do this in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight, we're beginning a new series uh, called The Songs of the Savior. You know, songs have a way of captivating our hearts. It's one thing to hear someone say, I love you, but then put that to a beautiful melody and it, it transcends, right, those words. And, and they, those words take a deeper meaning in one sense. And so what we want to do as we look at the various psalms is to allow these songs to minister to our hearts so that our mind and our heart will be captivated by Jesus in a fresh way. And I need this. I, I don't know about you, but I need this. I don't know if it's the long summer days. Maybe it's summer, being around with my children all, every day, you know. But I, I, need, I need a revival, some, something done in my heart. And so even as I'm bringing this word to you, know that I'm bringing it to myself first. I am preaching this to my own heart, praying that God would do a work in my heart first. The Messianic Psalms that we see in the book of Psalms are Psalms that really provide a window into the person, the work of Christ. And they function on two different horizons. They have an immediate historical fulfillment, as we will see, but they also point us forward to a future, to an eschatological and ultimate fulfillment in the person and the work of Christ. For example, Psalm 2, the psalm that we have read, is a coronation psalm, and it was fulfilled on the day an Israelite king was anointed, crowned, king like David, Solomon, and so on and so forth. 
But as you read through the, the Davidic lineage, you realize that none of these kings quite measure up. Because on one hand, you have Psalm 2 promising something on a universal scale, not just Israel, but the nations. And then you read through the kings and the chronicles and you realize something is not adding up. And so Psalm 2 points us to an eschatological fulfillment in a divine king, the one the prophets spoke of. And the New Testament picks up on this idea and says that this divine king has come. In Luke chapter 24, verse 27, Jesus said of himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he uh, interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, he was telling these two disciples on the road to Emmaus that everything was really about him. That the entire Old Testament anticipated the coming of this king and the work that he will begin and ultimately accomplish upon his return. And again, as I said, the goal is for us to be captivated by Jesus. So much so that it would create within our hearts a deep hunger for God. I think so often the challenge in our denomination is to get outside of doing theology in a test tube. We can come and dissect these words, understand it, sign off on them. But I think the scripture calls us to something much deeper and more profound. It's not just an intellectual exercise, but a heart transforming exercise where we walk away from encountering this God changed I don't know about you but this is what I long for and I, I think Tom teed it up perfectly I, as he was going through it framing the prayer time I was like man that's exactly what I wanted to talk about to keep Jesus always in the forefront of our hearts someone once said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing and as we look into these psalms I pray that Jesus would capture our hearts. Amen? So that we would be transformed. Because if we are not captivated by Jesus, we're captivated by something or someone else. And we bow before it. We serve it. And we look to it for salvation. And you know how, you know how that goes. It's a dead end. We either become exhausted trying or we become so discouraged. Yet all along, Jesus says, come. And he invites us to sit with him as we study the word together. You know, this past week, I watched a documentary called The Search for General So. Anyone watch this on Netflix? No one? Is it just me? <laughs> well, the documentary, I know now <laughs> i, I got to explain the whole thing. The documentary basically answered important life questions like who is this General So? And why do we eat his chicken? And why does it come with broccoli? Like what's, what's, why? Right? And how come the Chinese people don't know about it, right? It's up there with fortune cookies and crab ragu. It's like it's our invention. It's an American thing. And so as I was watching this, I, I kid you not, I mean, 
all I wanted was General Tso's chicken. <laughs> all the other foods somehow just lost their flavor. It just, it was bland, right? And this past week, I actually went to a Chinese restaurant, ordered General Tso's chicken, and it looked glorious. It glistened, almost sparkled on that plate. And the first bite was so good. It's everything it promised, right? And by the third piece, you're like, why did I do this? Why? This is, this is horrible. If our hearts are not captivated by Jesus, it's captivated by something else. Something as silly as General's chicken. And I, I hope that as we look into Psalm 2 tonight, that Jesus will take center stage in your heart. There's only one point. There's one point. Okay, so stay with me. One point, okay? What do we learn about Jesus the King? That he comes to claim his own. That he comes to claim his own. Psalm chapter 2 verses 1 through through 3 describe the futility of man and the folly of sin. These words that we read here in verses 1 through 3 find their ultimate and eschatological fulfillment in the final hours of Jesus' earthly life. King Herod and Pilate take counsel together against the Lord. The Gentile nations and the Jewish people rage and plot in vain against the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, Christ. And in verse 3, their discontentment takes shape and becomes clear that they, what they despise more than anything else is God's rule and ruler. It says in verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The Hebrew word for cords is the same word for the word yoke. Okay? And we'll get into that more later. But opposition against God and his people is nothing new. It happened then and it continues to happen today. In different parts of the world in varying degrees. It is said more Christians are martyred in the 20th century than in all the previous centuries combined. Sad to say, North Korea leading the way. It is a country that is repressive and it is trying to systematically kill the church by eliminating Christians. But it wasn't always the case. Back in 1907, Pyongyang Revival launched a great national movement in that country. So much so that all the missionaries in that region would long to send their children to be a part of what God is doing in North Korea. Does that sound foreign to you? And one of the most famous other kids from that time is Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife. And she writes about the fond memories of childhood in North Korea. After the Korean War, it was believed that the church in North Korea would not survive. That's what they said about China too. But reports are coming out that despite persecution, the church in North Korea is growing. And they even have a missional mindset. You know, the church in South Korea, they're praying every week for unification so that they could take the gospel to the north and to share the good news of Jesus to these people. It's a funny thing how the north 
looking at the plight of the South Korean churches, are saying, when God unifies this country, we want to go and purify the church. Why do the nations conspire and rage against the Lord? Because those who oppose God set out to do the impossible. God's commitment to to bring about good for his people will not be thwarted. He is committed to this story. Story that ends gloriously as we see in the book of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. As people from all over the world gather together to worship Christ our Lord. This is how it's going to end. And no king and kingdom is going to get in the way of God accomplishing this very purpose. And just as we saw in the book of Daniel, the kingdom of God will stand forever. But this has not stopped the world, and it has not stopped even Christians from seeking autonomy from God. You see, the temptation from the very beginning has been autonomy, separation from God. We want to be our own selves, to govern ourselves, and to do however, whatever we want. Remember what the serpent said said in the garden. He said, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. And those words ring through our hearts even today, don't they? I want to be free. I don't want anyone to tell me how to live. Once that lie germinates, it begins to suppress the truth so that we begin to despise what is good, true, and beautiful and love what is not. And the consequence of such disorder love is bondage, not freedom. We become imprisoned by our own desires, and we call that addiction. And that's what makes idols so attractive. It promises to set us free by meeting the longings of our hearts. But they're all counterfeit gods. They overpromise and underdeliver. And you know how it goes. The Rolling Stones put it this way, I can't get no satisfaction. And if you run after the idols of this world, holding on to the promises they offer, that's where you're going to end up. I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, I compare the idols to late night infomercials. If you stay up too late, right, I don't know what it is. But all of a sudden you begin to buy into some of these things. You know, initially you're like, come on, give me a break. But then those demonstrations, they make a strong case, right? And then you're like, all right, maybe, maybe. And then they hook you in with, but wait, there's more. And you're like, yes, tell me all about it. Can't tell you how many boxes of ShamWow we got in our basement. We thought that would be the answer to our mess. Uh, You know, I don't know if you own one, but. Don't get it, okay? It's not worth it. Yeah, and the temptation to throw off God's yoke is ironic because it is God's yoke, okay, that Jesus says is our refuge, our safe haven. The very thing that gives us true rest is the thing that we're trying to get rid of. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. He invites us to come. And he says, take my yoke upon you. Why? 
because I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, it's one of those biblical ironies. Our freedom is only found when we yoke ourselves to Christ. Why? Because biblical freedom is all about human flourishing. It's about human flourishing. Sin dehumanizes people to either a vehicle to get what we want or an obstacle in the way of what we want. That's what people become. I experience this all the time when I drive in D.C. I reduce these human beings, image bearers, to a bunch of people who can't drive. And when you reduce them to that, it's very easy to get angry at them. Honk the horn a little louder and longer. That's what sin does. The gospel reverses that curse and it rehumanizes people as God's image bearers, regardless of race, class, and even sexual orientation. And I believe as we are in the thick of this conversation about where does the church stand on this issue? How can we engage this, you know, same-sex attracted community winsomely with the gospel? As we're talking about all of these things, I think the first thing we have to do is to lead with repentance and humility. We need to own up to the fact that we have been for years silent, indifferent, and even judgmental. That's where healing begins. And I know many of you have a heart for that group and you long to see the church engage that group well, to love them well. But if we're going to make any progress on that front, it's going to begin right here as we own up to our sin and repent. And I had to, as I was thinking about this, I had to repent. I know growing up, I had my own issues. That led me to view that community and demonize it. How about you? Because once you understand the gospel, you don't put people in various boxes and write them off. No, you elevate them as image bearers. Glorious ruins, as Schaefer said. And I think it would do us well to begin by repentance and humility. If you are visiting our church for the first time and looking into Christian faith, I want you to understand that we as a church, we are committed to providing a safe and a walking, welcoming place where we can have humble, honest, and respectful conversations about issues that divide and demonize. We may not agree on everything, but that's okay. We can agree to love one another. And I hope that you, that would be your experience here in our church. So how does God react? How does God react to the folly of sin? Verses 4 through 6, but I want to focus on verses 5 and 6 here. Then... He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You see, the ultimate fulfillment of this verse is incarnation. 
Yes, it was fulfilled when David was crowned, when Solomon was crowned, so on and so forth. But it was ultimately fulfilled when Christ came into this world as a babe. And that's why the New Testament's writers say that a child baby is born. A child is given, a baby is born, a king is here. I want you to understand that God does not repay evil with good. He does not, in his wrath and fury, destroy the nations, but he gives them a gift. The most precious gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his, demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the gospel. And no matter how much we oppose God, no, much how we, no, no matter how much we plan and strategize against God, God and his will to love, love us and serve us would not be thwarted. You see, our sin would not deter God from making good on his promise to do good for us. And there is a longing for such a king in all of us. It's one of the echoes of Eden, as one author said, an innate part of our creatureliness that longs for a king, a good and righteous king to reign over us. And you know, our stories reflect this longing, doesn't it? From Robin Hood to the Lord of the Rings, there is a growing anticipation in these stories for a good king to come and restore the kingdom the way it should be. C.S. Lewis once said it this way. He said, we all live in shadow lands, not in a world as it should be, nor the world it would be. So in the meantime, we suffer what he calls homesickness. We know and have an inkling of the way things should be in our hearts. But when we look at the broken world around us, we say to ourselves, this is not the way it should be. Someone has to come and right the wrong to undo the curse of sin and restore those things the way they were meant to be. I remember, even as a non-Christian, this was one of the things that really spoke to my heart. I looked at the brokenness in this world, and I knew something was wrong. And when I heard one of the preachers talk about the promise of heaven and what God has committed himself to do, I said, that's what my heart longs for. I, I, I long to see the day when the sin and all of its consequences in this world are wiped away where we can engage one another with openness, honesty, and love the way we should as people. I don't know about you, but that's what my heart longs for. And that's the work that Christ has begun to do. And he invites us to come and participate in that very work that he's doing. The coordination language of verse 7 is referenced in Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, where God the Father said, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. 
The title son here refers to the messianic title from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And beloved denotes intimacy shared with none other. The interesting thing about Jesus' baptism is how ordinary it is. You would expect foreign dignitaries and heads of states and all the pomp and circumstance on this very special occasion. But all you find are sinners. Sinners who know their need for a savior. That's what John's baptism was. It was an adaptation of an Old Testament ritual right, that symbolized God's forgiveness. And people would line up to receive this baptism from John. And among them on that day was Jesus. Not because he needed cleansing, but he wanted to identify with the broken people like you and I. You see, the glory of our king is not his throne or, or his palace. It's not the size of his army or the wealth he has amassed. But the glory of our king is to be in relationship with messed up people like you and me. I love the, the text in Hebrews where the author says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And it's not because he doesn't know. He knows us better than we know ourselves. But he comes alongside of us, puts his arms around us, and he says, this is my brother. This is my sister. And I am not ashamed to be identified with them. I remember as a high school student going shopping with my grandmother. And my grandmother, she processed things out loud. She wasn't just an external processor. It was an out loud external processor. And she would look at these prices. And instead of saying, oh, wow, it's kind of expensive, she would let everyone else in the aisle know that these prices are just crazy compared to what they were back in 1950s in Korea. <laughs> I'm like, Grandma, times have changed, okay? It's not 1950s Korea, like, Come on. And it got to a point where I was so ashamed to be with her that I would drop her off at the Korean grocery store and say, Grandma, I would wait for you right here in the car. Okay? And when you are done, okay, I will come and pick you up. I, I was so ashamed. But Jesus is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of me. And I know all the ways that I fall short. I'm sure my wife could add a few more. But I know I am far from perfect. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better pastor. I want to be a better Christian. And even though I have a hard time accepting myself sometimes, Jesus comes alongside of me. He lifts me up and he says, look, I am not ashamed to call you my own. And maybe that's where some of you are tonight. Feeling weighed down by your past mistakes. And you realize you're nowhere near where you should be. And you're a bit uncomfortable even being here tonight. Well, you're in good company. 
Because Jesus says to you, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. See, this is the message from the very beginning. From his baptism to the cross, Jesus came for broken people. Broken people who would say to him, I need you. I'm not even sure what that means, but I know I need help. Help outside of myself. Jesus crossed every boundary, be it social, cultural, religious, whatever boundary there was, he crossed it in search of the one lost sheep so that he could say, you are mine. Jesus came into this world, born as a king, and lived a perfect life so that he could say to his own, you are mine, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And those words are spoken over us again and again and again. You may not have the faith to believe it, but he does. And he is committed to making you into that very person that he is committed to be. We see this all throughout his earthly ministry. He looked at Zacchaeus, an extortionist, who made a living robbing from his own people. He said to him, Zacchaeus, you are mine. He claims him as his own. He goes all the way to Samaria in the heat of the day to meet a Samaritan woman who is marginalized by her society because of her past sin. And he says to her, you are mine. You are mine. And he watched Mary, a prostitute, pouring oil and anointing his feet and said, you are mine. And he says to all of us, struggling to make it in Washington, struggling to make it in our own household, and he says, you are mine. In one sense, we're all damaged goods. But he has a soft spot for broken people who would say to him, I need help. In Psalm Verse 8, chapter 2, verse 8. Here the words are spoken to the king. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. The language mirrors the promise of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God promised Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And here we see, at Jesus' baptism, that the blessing of Genesis 12 is tied to the reign of Jesus the King. And again, these words from Psalm 2, verse 8, find their ultimate fulfillment in the mission of Jesus Christ. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he sends his disciples to all the nations. It says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. In that sense, Jesus, through his perfect life, has earned the right to say, God, I will ask of you for the nations as my inheritance. And now, after accomplishing all that, he sends his people to bring, to usher in Christ's reign to the ends of the earth. 
and his kingdom that we are a part of. And we're trying to expand through our daily obedience is a kingdom of blessing. And that's what the Beatitudes is all about, right? Blessed are, blessed are. And if you go through the list, you realize, again, he has a soft spot for the broken people, imperfect people who are willing to say, God, I need you. And one day, Jesus, our king, will return to finish what he began. And on that day, he will remove the veil to reveal the glorious plan that he set in motion through his ministry, his death, and the empty tomb. But until then, we have this promise that our daily obedience to live for this king is not wasted. Our little obedience become instruments in this king who then take these obediences to put a piece here, to add a piece there, to bring that person here, to encourage that person there, to strengthen, to teach, to edify, and to even rebuke that person so that that person will look more like Christ. So how do we respond to this king? And we will end with this thought. Surrender. We need to surrender to King Jesus. In Psalm 2, verses 10 and following, it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, it says. Bless all who take refuge in him. The psalmist calls us to lay aside our pride, to lay down our arms and submit to this king. And when you do, you will find another biblical irony. Our service will become joy and our submission will become our freedom. You see, surrender is accepting reality that God is God and I am not. Control is an illusion. We can't control anyone or any of the outcomes. It's, it's a myth. Yet we cling to this illusion that somehow I can control something. And the gospel says, you can't. But there is one who can. Come and be in relationship with this king. And enjoy rest. Instead of trying so hard for this or that outcome. Come and trust that he knows better than you. And he's got everything under control. And when we begin to let go of these things, Psalm says, we will experience true blessing and happiness. Let me ask you, as you think about this idea of surrendering to King Jesus, are there areas in your life that you are holding on to? Somehow, you said, Jesus, you can have this, but this, no, this is off limits. Jesus, I'm fine with you being king over here, but can I please have this? Are there areas that are not yet surrendered to the Lord? And I pray that as you think about Christ who comes to claim you as his own, to make good on his promise, to give you hope, to give you life, that the vision of Christ will loosen your grip on the various areas of your heart 
to say, Jesus, here I am. And that you would lay your heart and your life before him today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your commitment to each and every one of us, your people. We know we don't deserve it. But that has never stopped you. And even today, through this worship service, from the invitation to forgiveness, to the word and now the table, you encourage us to come. To come and feast on your grace and on your love and your goodness for us. So we ask now that you would give us faith to respond in Christ's name. Amen.